In May of 1924, Nathan and Richard parked their Willis Knight automobile and walked up to the sandwich shop stand. Once at the counter, they ordered two hot dogs and two glass bottles of root beer. To anyone there, the duo must have seemed like any ordinary college friends, though perhaps slightly younger, better-looking, and wealthier than the rest of the patrons. Except that Nathan and Richard were not your ordinary college friends at all. For one, they were lovers. And two, in the back seat of their automobile, hidden beneath a thick blanket, lie the bloodied corpse of 14-year-old Bobby Franks. I'm your host, Elise, and this is Old Blood, the historical true crime podcast. Even if you have not heard the details of the case, you probably have heard the names Leopold and Loeb before. The crime they committed is often referred to as the crime of the century, which always makes me roll my eyes just a little bit because it seems as though every century has like three or four so-called crimes of the century. But in this case, it might just be true. There are so many historical themes wrapped up in this case that it's difficult to even know where to begin telling it. Homosexuality, adolescence and adulthood, capital punishment, modernity and progress, modern psychology, mental illness, and the argument over whether it is nature or nurture responsible for our personalities are just some of the main themes woven throughout the Leopold Loeb murder trial. The media of the 1920s instantly made the case infamous. It was one of those cases that was just so despicable and inexplicable that people began to fear for their entire society. Leopold and Loeb represented everything that Americans felt was going wrong with their country. To them, it seemed as though the modern world had given way to the godless philosophies that made such a tragedy possible. Americans feared that the world war they had just emerged from had somehow destroyed the moral fabric of society and paved a path for the morally bankrupt Roaring Twenties. They complained that they were now too used to blood, that their children were too spoiled, too educated, lived too fast, too flashy, and strayed too far from their Christian foundations. One newspaper cried that the Frank slaying was the fruit of the Jazz Age. The publicity the Leopold Loeb case gained mirrored their fears that their society was in the process of a moral breakdown. From the moment newspapers named Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb as suspects in the murder of little Bobby Franks, people not just in Chicago, where the murder took place, or even nationwide, but people internationally had a field day because of who the suspects were and why they did what they did. Or, should I say, why they did not do what they did. Here were three young boys, all intelligent, all from wealthy families, all had everything they could have ever wanted, and yet two of them decided to murder the third. 
As soon as details about the crime became public, people drove themselves crazy trying to find a motive for such a gruesome deed and came up with nothing. Nathan and Richard hadn't murdered for fame or money or hatred or love or jealousy or any of the reasons usually behind a murder. They killed, it seemed, for the mere thrill of it, just because they could, just because they were curious. Or so the narrative said. I will begin this story not with a narrative of the murder, though I will get there, I promise, but of a short biography of each of the two murderers. And I do this not to eclipse the victim, nor to give the murderers any more fame than they already have, but because the backgrounds and personalities of Leopold and Loeb are essential to understanding anything at all about this case. And because, if we are to learn anything from this tragedy, we first must identify the warning signs that the families of Leopold and Loeb clearly did not see. Now, for storytelling purposes, I will refer to them not as Leopold and Loeb, but as Nathan and Richard. If you're like me, Leopold and Loeb sound far too similar to keep track of who's who and who's doing what. So from now on, Nathan Leopold will just be Nathan, and Richard Loeb is just Richard. Once we get to the trial, you will hear them described as Babe and Dickie, which are nicknames that those close to them used, Dickie for Richard and Babe for Nathan, but I am not about to spend the rest of this podcast referring to a Babe and a Dickie. I'm just not. At first glance, Richard and Nathan seem quite similar. Both very intelligent, both with dark hair and spiffy-looking 1920s clothing, both from the same wealthy Chicago neighborhood, both sons of rich Jewish families, and both with some obvious psychological problems. But the closer we look at the two, the easier it is to see how different their personalities actually were. Though Nathan Leopold was born to a Jewish family that immigrated from Germany, Nathan himself was born in Chicago in 1904. He was the textbook definition of a child prodigy, who supposedly spoke his first words when he was only four months old. One of my sources says that he spoke 27 languages fluently, but another says it was only nine, and yet another says five, which I think is far more likely. In any case, that's still pretty impressive to me. Anyway, he became the youngest graduate of the University of Chicago when he graduated with his bachelor's degree at the age of 18, when most people are just leaving high school. By the time the murder took place, Nathan was in law school at the University of Chicago and was planning a trip to Europe during the summer before transferring to Harvard Law School, where he was recently admitted. He obviously loved law, but he was also obsessed with ornithology, which is the study of birds, and liked taking trips out into nature to study them. And, coming from a rich family, there was not much that Nathan lacked. He had his choice of schools, a car, a healthy monthly allowance, and a future trip abroad. So along with being intelligent, he had a definite air of entitlement. From the time he was a young child, he believed that there were certain things that he was exempted from, or entitled to, on account of his wealth. 
being both entitled and more intelligent than those around him, left him with what one journalist called a permanent chip attached to his drooping shoulder. Nathan was shy and sensitive. He frequently felt insulted by the few people he spoke to, as though he were too good for them and too smart for anyone to really understand him. And despite his many gifts, his looks were not one of them. I personally don't think he was ugly. I wouldn't describe him as such. But most people who describe his appearance have. Though that may be because they knew what he was guilty of and that made him look more sinister. To me, he was an average-looking boy, and one that obviously took his time to look neat and groomed. Many people described him as developing sexually at a very young age, and that his parents grew concerned over what they saw as an, quote, abnormal sexuality, end quote. There were also hints that his parents sent him to be the only boy at an all-girls school because they were afraid of him becoming homosexual. But what the parents didn't know, at least I hope, is that the governess they hired to educate and care for Nathan began sexually abusing him, in addition to forcing the 12-year-old Nathan to perform sex acts with her. The governess was also incredibly strict with him and obsessed over everything that he did. It is unclear whether this trauma caused or exacerbated Nathan's social anxieties, but everyone agreed that he had a difficult time talking to girls. He became shy and awkward around them, and some people claim that it seemed as though he were afraid of women. Then, to further compound his confusion over the opposite sex, his mother died while he was young, leaving him with only an abusive governess as the primary female figure in his life. And as if all that were not enough to mess with a young boy's emotional well-being, he began college at the age of 15. Later, Nathan went on to explain how it felt as though he skipped his teenage years entirely. And with that skip, Nathan explained, I lost the growth of character and the personality that normally goes with them. It is easy to see how he became so socially awkward, having been abused by those meant to protect him, teased by those his own age, and flung into adulthood while he was still far too young. Then, when he met Richard, all of this swirled into the perfect storm. Where Nathan was awkward, shy, and antisocial, Richard was charismatic, outgoing, and popular. Richard came from a family even richer and more well-known than Nathan's. His father was a lawyer and vice president of Sears Roebuck, the famous mail-order catalog-turned-department store that you probably know now as simply Sears. So Richard received twice the allowance that Nathan did, along with everything else Nathan had, plus more. His family also owned a summer lake house that really was more of an estate in Michigan. Like Nathan, Richard was also very smart, though not quite near the caliber that Nathan was. He found school easy, with minimal effort, and skipped several grades before eventually entering the University of Michigan and leaving as their youngest graduate. He then began law school at the age of 17 at the University of Chicago, where Nathan was. And while Nathan was into ornithology, Richard loved reading historical novels and obsessed over mysteries and true crime, 
many people later love to point as the reason for him turning into a murderer. Though I love history, mysteries, and true crime, and I have never once murdered anyone, so I'm not entirely convinced by that argument. But the truth was that as much as Richard was charming, athletic, tall, and handsome, he had plenty of insecurities, though he would never admit it. He suffered from nervous tics and often stuttered. One of my sources also suggested that he had epilepsy and the tendency to faint without warning. Instead of retreating from society like Nathan, Richard instead developed an inferiority complex and fancied himself smarter, stronger, and better looking than anyone else. He had a dark side that lurked beneath his charming veneer. He was arrogant, callous, inconsiderate, and capable of much cruelty. He, too, had a governess who tried to control every aspect of his life. And so, to cope, Richard taught himself how to lie and manipulate in order to get what he wanted anyway. He lied so often that it became second nature to him. It became a game, almost. How good could he get at inventing elaborate lies on the spot? How could he manipulate others to make them think what he wanted them to? He lied so well and so frequently that he sometimes forgot what the truth even was. Soon, manipulation was not good enough, and he began to fantasize about being a master criminal, one so devious and intelligent that all other criminals came to him for advice. Richard clearly viewed himself as above the law and exempt from the rules that applied to everyone else, so it made sense that his fantasies portrayed himself as a man above all others. But this idea was not all his. In the course of their studies, Nathan and Richard became enamored with the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, particularly as it helped them cope with the difficulties they faced. They were drawn to nihilism, or the belief that God is dead, that there is no underlying meaning or purpose for our existence here on Earth. One solution to this problem was the Ubermensch, the Superman or the creator of an all-new set of values. This Superman was one who rose above the morality of the masses. For him, there was no such thing as good and evil, because good and evil was what he said it was. You see, Nathan had fantasies of his own. He fantasized that he was a slave. I know, it sounds super awkward for someone's own fantasies to be of them being a slave, but stick with me here. Nathan envisioned himself not as any ordinary slave. He was like a Superman slave. And more importantly, he was a slave to the king. In fact, Nathan was a slave so powerful that the king relied on him to protect him at all times. And though the king gave him orders and was superior in looks and charisma, the king needed his slave. And that, in itself, made him powerful. So when 14-year-old Nathan met Richard a year younger than him, these fantasies and personalities coalesced into the perfect storm. In Nathan, Richard had found his slave. And in Richard, the slave found his king. It sounds as though Nathan fell in love with Richard pretty much immediately, 
and was beyond enamored with him and his looks and his wit. I've read that Richard responded to Nathan's puppy love with a sort of revulsion, at least initially, but it does become clear that Richard himself was at least bisexual, if not outright gay. Though it's unclear if he recognized this in himself at the time, he and Nathan first became friends. What is clear, though, is that however much Richard pretended to dislike Nathan's infatuation with him, he secretly loved the attention. Nathan's obsession with him affirmed Richard's belief that he possessed superior looks, intelligence, and charm. When I say Nathan was obsessed, this is no exaggeration. He later admitted, I admired Richard Loeb extravagantly, beyond all bounds. I literally lived or died on his approval or disapproval. I would have done anything he asked. And in what has got to be the creepiest confession I've ever heard, he once admitted that he was jealous of Richard's food and drink because Nathan could never be as close to him as the food and drink could. Nathan often pushed at the boundaries of this friendship, seeking more than what Richard was willing to give. Yet Richard also wanted more from Nathan in that he wanted a partner in crime. For years, Richard had gotten away with the petty crimes he committed on his own, and began fantasizing about everything he could get away with if he had someone to help him. It became obvious to them both that they each possessed something the other longed for, and in this exchange, the two developed a close relationship. Eventually, Richard and Nathan made an agreement to exchange sex for participation in crimes. At first, Richard would agree to have sex with Nathan three times in two months, so long as he continued to help him with whatever crimes he wanted to commit. Nathan evidently began to view this as an unfair trade, and so after some arguing, they agreed to exchange one act of crime for one sexual favor. Of course, this was all in private, and the two acted as platonic friends in public, since the 20s were hostile towards homosexuality. But whether it was that Nathan found it difficult to hide his desire for Richard and others began to notice, or that the two often had these lovers' quarrels, people began to suspect that they were a lot closer than they thought normal. And really, their fights did get pretty bad. Both threatened to kill each other at some point or another. Sometimes they threatened to commit suicide. Apparently, people began to talk because Richard's brother advised Richard not to be seen out with Nathan in public too often. And so, for two years, the friends met alone only in the privacy of their home and took care to be with other friends if they were going to be at the same place at the same time. During one nasty quarrel between the two, Nathan wrote to Richard telling him that if he no longer wanted to be friends, then that was fine, but they should keep up the appearance of being friends in public so as to not be seen as in Nathan's own words, quote, a falling out of a pair of cocksuckers, end quote. Of course, them not remaining friends was obviously not okay with Nathan, and the two wrote back and forth explaining their sides of the story, apologizing for some things and not for others, so as to not appear too weak to the other. One of these letters made me laugh because at the end of it, Nathan told Richard, if you want to keep being friends, call my house tomorrow before noon and say, Dick says yes. Or, if you don't, say, Dick says no. 
And I laugh because I remember being a kid and my cousin and I sending out notes to our parents asking them if we could have a sleepover and then including free checkboxes at the bottom for them to check either yes, no, or maybe. And that is exactly what their letters reminded me of. It just seemed like such a childish thing to do and made me wonder if their lawyers really were on to something when they said that the two were emotionally stunted. Because despite their age, their being in college, their insane intelligence, and their sexual activity, they really did act as though they were children a lot of the time, even in the crimes they committed leading up to the murder. For years, the duo went on crime sprees. They stole from people around the neighborhood, set fire to things, burned down a shack, began vandalizing and shoplifting, and eventually this stopped being enough for them. In their minds, a master criminal does not become a master criminal by stealing from drugstores. They become master criminals by committing horrible acts and getting away with them. They were far smarter than the average criminals, they reasoned, so much so that they embodied the ubermensch, the superman. So if anyone could commit a perfect crime, it was them. And by 1924, they both faced big changes. Nathan was set to go off to Europe for the summer, and when he returned, he would start at Harvard, ending their four-year relationship. Richard began plotting how to continue his crimes alone, or whether to find a new co-conspirator, and Nathan felt pressured to prove himself unforgettable. And that was when they decided to escalate to murder. They began planning their murder months in advance. Their first act of preparation was in November, about six months before they killed Bobby Franks. They stole a typewriter while on a trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan, with which they decided to type the ransom letter on. They had typewriters of their own, but didn't want to take the chance that the letter would be traced back to them. Then, for a few months, they discussed the logistics of the crime. How should the ransom letter be delivered without being traced to them? Who should they kill? And how do they kidnap him? What should the manner of death be? For a while, they decided they should use a rope to choke someone to death with, so that they could each hold one end of it and be equally guilty of the crime. Nathan tried to convince Richard that they should etherize the victim to death, in other words, hold a rag dipped in ether over the victim's face until they became unconscious, because he believed it was more humane and wouldn't produce as much of a mess. They knew their getaway car would take the longest to plan, since they wanted to rent it rather than risk using their own. In order to rent a car, they had to have three references, and even though they felt confident in Nathan's ability to convince the rental car company into accepting only one reference, as he was supposedly new to the city, visiting as a traveling salesman, they still needed to arrange an alias to be this reference. They rented a hotel room under the salesman's name, Morton D. Ballard, and gave the rental car company the number of a telephone booth, where Richard, a.k.a. Louis Mason, would be waiting to provide his reference. Then, Nathan, a.k.a. Ballard, 
paid a $50 deposit well in advance, taking the car out for several hours just to establish credit and let the rental run smoothly on the day of the murder. It also took them a while to scope out the field in which the ransom letter would instruct the victim's father to toss the money from a moving train. They practiced throwing packages from the rear of the train to make sure the ransom money landed precisely where they would be least exposed when they went to collect it. On the day before the murder, Nathan and Richard drove around town purchasing supplies. They bought a rope and a chisel from a hardware store, then went to two different drugstores to procure some hydrochloric acid, since the first store didn't have any. They then returned to Nathan's house where they collected some rags to use as gags, borrowed his brother's hip boots, since they planned to dump the body in a culvert, which is a large drainage pipe and it would be wet. The boys wrapped the pointed end of the chisel with some medical adhesive tape so that they wouldn't lose grip while beating their victim with the blunt end of it. Finally, they sat down to type the ransom letter, detailing how the victim's father should place $10,000 in a securely tied cigar box, wrapped in white paper and with the ends closed in sealing wax, then answer their phone calls which would take him around town and finally to board a train, where he was to throw the package as far east as possible after passing a red building that had the word champion on it and counting to five. He was not to involve the police or they would murder his son. They addressed the letter only to Sir because they thoroughly and painstakingly planned every moment of the crime down to each minute detail, except for one. They still weren't sure who they wanted to kill. As if this story couldn't get more messed up, Richard first contemplated using his own brother as the murder victim and change his mind, not because he cared about his brother, but because he decided it would be too easy to give himself away if he had to deal with getting a ransom from his own family. Then they considered little Billy Dutch, because they knew each other and he would likely trust the boys enough to go with them, but decided against it because Billy's dad was president of Sears Roebuck, which Richard's dad was VP of and he thought it might hurt the business to do so. They also thought of their friend Dick Brubell, then changed their mind after deciding his dad was a bit too much of a tightwad and might not give them the money. So on the day of May 21st, 1924, Nathan and Richard picked up the rental car, had some lunch at Kramer's restaurant, and then idled outside of Harvard Preparatory School waiting for the children to be dismissed. The first boy that caught their eye was John Levinson, so they watched him from afar as he left the school and walked to a vacant lot where some other kids were playing. It was hard for them to keep an eye on him, so Nathan went back home to pick up his bird-watching binoculars, while Richard went to the store to look up John's address and buy some dentine gum. They watched John for a while, but eventually lost sight of him when he walked down the street with a girl. They hopped in their car and tried to track him down, but the little boy was nowhere to be found so they turned around towards the school where they saw Bobby Franks walking down the street, headed home from his baseball practice. Richard actually already knew Bobby Franks, 
because aside from being his second cousin, Bobby lived across the street from him and frequently went over to Richard's house to play tennis there. Unfortunately, we know very little about Robert Franks, especially in comparison to his murderers, but we do know that Bobby was a smart 14-year-old. He was a good student in that he got good grades, though he did bother his teachers who complained that he was, quote, too self-satisfied, end quote, and a bit of a smartass. He was a member of his school's debate team and, in a twist of irony, once argued against the capital punishment and won. Like Richard and Nathan, Bobby was Jewish, lived in the same upscale neighborhood of Kenwood, and also had a wealthy father, Honest Jake Franks, a real estate financer with a reputation for being fair. So what made Bobby a good victim in Richard and Nathan's eyes? He was younger and smaller and easier to physically restrain. He already knew Richard, so he wouldn't be so suspicious of them that he would run away before they could get their hands on him. And they knew his father was rich enough and willing enough to pay them the $10,000 ransom. Upon spotting Bobby, Nathan turned the car around and pulled up next to him. Richard whistled out of the open window and called Bobby over. He told Bobby to get in, that they would give him a ride home, but Bobby declined, saying thanks, but that he would rather walk home. Well, just get in for a minute then, Richard told Bobby, explaining that he wanted to ask him about a certain tennis racket. After Bobby got into the front passenger seat, Nathan asked if he would mind if they drove around the block while they talked, to which Bobby said no, that he didn't mind. Richard, seated directly behind Bobby, reached into the front seat, putting one arm around Bobby, and used the chisel to bludgeon him with the other. Richard pulled the moaning, bleeding, and half-conscious Bobby over the front seat and into the back, and then shoved rags down his throat to gag him. When Bobby was finally quiet, Richard wrapped a blanket over him and returned to the front seat where he sat as Nathan drove them into the country. Years after they committed the murder, Nathan claimed that he thought the point was just to plan out the perfect murder, just to prove they could, and didn't really believe that would actually come to fruition. And then when the day arrived and Richard grabbed the victim, it was too late for Nathan to back down. Of course, this admission was in a letter to the parole board, so it's okay for us to doubt the veracity of this claim. Nathan also claimed that when Richard started hitting Bobby with the chisel, he began to cry out, saying, Oh God, I didn't know it was going to be like this. Whether or not he actually said this, it is clear that Nathan showed at least some remorse compared to Richard, who acted as though it didn't faze him in the slightest. In fact, in his testimony to the police, Richard claimed he was so excited by what had just happened that he wasn't even paying attention to where they were driving. Nathan maintained that he was repulsed by the murder, from the moment it happened, until his dying day. The most regret Richard showed was when he said they passed by Bobby's house, 
and it made him feel, quote, a little uncomfortable, end quote. Still, the two were crass enough to stop for hot dogs and root beer with Bobby's body in the trunk while they waited for the sun to set before they buried him. Before stopping for food, the boys drove up a deserted Denden Street and stripped Bobby of his shoes, stockings, and pants. Richard claimed they did this so that they wouldn't have to do too much undressing later on when they went to bury him, but the state prosecutors claimed that it made no sense to undress only Bobby's bottom half and insisted that they only did this to sexually molest him. Finally, it was dark enough for the boys to return to the location they scouted for burial, so they exited the car and stripped him of the rest of his clothes. Apparently, one version of their plans had them only knocking Bobby unconscious and killing him later on. But as soon as they were able to get out and look at Bobby the first time, they knew he was already dead, either from suffocating on the rags or from the head wounds. When asked how they knew he was dead, they replied that they knew it from looking at his eyes, for one, but also because they were having so much trouble moving and taking his clothes off. They claimed they drove around with his dead body for so long that rigor mortis had already taken effect by the time they arrived at the culvert. And once they were there, and after removing Bobby's clothes, they grabbed the hydrochloric acid and poured it over his face to prevent him from being identified, and then over his genitals, so that no one would be able to tell he was circumcised. Nathan then removed his own jacket, glasses, and shoes, and slid on the hip boots. As he was the only one with the boots, Nathan alone carried Bobby into the drainage pipe and shoved him into it headfirst, giving him a shove with his foot to push him further from view. And here, the murderers made two fatal mistakes. And while there would be more, it was these two errors that ensured they would be brought to justice. See, Richard and Nathan had been banking on the fact that by the time the body was finally located by anyone, way out in the isolated location they left him in, the body would be so decomposed that it would be impossible to identify. And by that time, they would have already collected the ransom money and covered up all of their tracks. Unfortunately for them, and fortunately for everyone else, it was so dark when Nathan shoved Bobby into that pipe that neither of them were able to see that one of Bobby's feet was sticking out in plain view of anyone who passed by. Then, in the process of removing his hip boots and replacing them with his other shoes, and bending down to grab his jacket to put back on, Nathan's glasses fell out of his pocket and onto the floor, where they would stay until the next day, when police came to investigate the discovery of the naked corpse of a young boy. That's it for today, but I will see you back here next week for part two. If you think the story is crazy now, just wait until you hear the rest of it next week. If you like this episode, please take a second to rate us. It really does make all the difference for us. 
Also, we will be posting some pictures on our Instagram, which you can find by searching for Old Blood Podcast. And you can always go to oldbloodpodcast.com to read a little more about us and to see our show notes. For more information on our sources, check our show notes. And a big thank you to Shane Ivers at silvermansound.com for the wonderful soundtrack we used on today's podcast. <laughs>